Hi, it's Macon from the ARC Audio Book Club. There's no new book club this month, so instead we're going to release the audio from an event we held back in March as part of this year's Koboho Laser Festival. That's Copenhagen Reader to the non-Danish speakers. Um, the theme of which this year was growth, and the event that we held was called Accursed Growth, with an exclamation point. And during this, we tried to explore the concept of growth from the perspective of Georges Bataille's theory of general economy. The evening began with a series of readings to help us abstract growth into a more malleable concept, which allowed us to broaden the discussion to include things like gender and identity, uh, the environment and the economy. And those readings are in the podcast you're listening to right now. In the second podcast, you'll hear from the philosopher Jorn Oren Grimm and the researcher and feminist activist Rebecca Lund as they discuss how the literature and philosophy that has been introduced so far, mixed with radical politics and feminist philosophy, can help us rethink growth as something liberatory rather than oppressive. On a technical note, when we hold readings in art books, the intimacy of the space can heighten the experience, giving it a grandeur that just doesn't translate on the audio recording. So to remedy this, we've tried to find a technical way to enhance this audio and help listeners engage with the topic more fully and more intensely. So through the miracles of audio engineering, we have restaged Accursed Growth in the Royal Festival Hall of London's South Bank. Now sit back and enjoy readings of George Bataille, Franz Kafka, Sylvia Plath, Hang Kang, and Kathy Acker, performed by the volunteers of ARC Books. You can also check out the Bataille reading as a video on the ARC Books Facebook page. Hi, um, welcome to Accursed Growth, which is part of um, this year's uh, Copacola Laser Festival. Um, and it's been made possible by the hard work of um, the ARC volunteers, some of which you can see before you, some of which you will not know because they look like regular people, because they'll be lovely grouts and making everything work. Um, also, I want to say thank you to Nobo Lokel Uno for um, a grant which has also helped put this thing together. And um, we're really grateful to them and all the efforts that they're putting in. And I'm very grateful for the help I've had in getting this together. Um, and we're also grateful to our customers that keep the lights on. Um, so please, if you feel like buying stuff, we definitely want to sell it to you. Because like memberships are also cool. Um, you, can, you can brag to all your friends. Um, so tonight, we're going to explore um, the interconnections between a whole range of things, from uh, fallacies of infinite economic growth, to the looming prospect of nuclear war, and to the oppressive limitations of gender construction. Um, and we're going to delve into these issues through the only appropriate method for inquiry for this, which is um, through obscure French philosophy, Ooh. feminist theory, and literature with a little bit of evil about it. Um, Everything we're going to discuss has been built out from, but it's not, this is not an event about the time, where you kind of hang it on, that, on this concept of uh, general economy and the accursed share, um, which John Rebecca will start from and then expand out from um, in the second half, uh, which is basically a theory of economy that uh, puts consumption as, and waste as the essential, as essential to the concept of growth itself. Um, and which entangles a whole range of human and non-human life and behavior. Uh, so this evening's gonna work like this. In the first half, we're going to uh, basically load on a whole bunch of texts to you guys. Um, and in the second half, we'll try and expand on that context. The texts um, we've chosen have uh, come out of myself, Jorn, and Rebecca Lund, um, working together in the last few uh, weeks to uh, put this thing together. And we're going to start off with a, um, a, a short film, which will be on this wall here. So anyone behind the wall 
we'll obviously not be seeing it. It'll probably go on the internet though, so that'll be it'll be later. Um, in which, which has been made by uh, one of our other volunteers, uh, Minerva Pisler, and um, and that's been followed by readings of four texts, which are these first three kind of go together. Um, the first is, Kafka, is an extract from Kafka's novella, A Hunger Artist. The second is from Sylvia Plath's only novel, The Bell Jar. And the third will be re the recently translated uh, novel by Han Kang, Vegetarian. After this, we'll add a reading from Kathy Acker's novel, Great Expectations. And then we'll try and explain what all that was about in the second half. Um, so the first, we're going to start with this time movie, as I already mentioned, uh, which was made from uh, footage gathered um, on Iceland. Uh, and also intercut with uh, scenes from The Bachelor. And the reading is from the second volume of The Cursed Share by George Rotai. This is by Mother. Humans, we are numbers. We are meant to take account of the quantity of energy we have at our disposal. We do this spontaneously, but in return, we should recognize the need to consider the other. We have quantities of energy that we are obliged to spend in any case. We can always dry up its source. We would only have to work less and be idle, at least in part. But then leisure is one way, among others, of squandering, of destroying the surplus energy, or, to simplify, the surplus available resources. 24 hours of leisure activities cost in positive terms, the energy necessary for the production of a day supply of necessary provisions. Or negatively, if one prefers, a non-production of everything a worker would have produced in this lapse of time. Pure leisure is merely added to the outlets that the available energy has beyond what is required for basic necessities. These outlets are essentially eroticism, luxury products, and amusements. Which are the small change of the holiday? Then there is work, and lastly, wars. Of course, what we spend in one category is in principle lost for the others. There are many possibilities of slippage. Alcohol, war, and holidays involve us in eroticism. But this means simply that the possible expenditures in one category are ultimately reduced by those we make in the others. So that only the profits found in war truly alter this principle. Even so, in most cases, these profits correspond to the losses of the vanquished. We need to make a principle of the fact that sooner or later the sum of excess energy that is managed for us by our labor so great that it limits the share available for erotic purposes will be spent in a catastrophic war. Of course, it would be childish to conclude right away that if we relaxed more and gave the erotic game a larger share of energy, the danger of war would decrease. It would decrease only if the easing off occurred in such a way that the world did lose an already precarious equilibrium. Indeed, this picture is so clear that we can immediately draw a different conclusion. We will not be able to decrease the risk of war before we have reduced, or begun to reduce, the general disparity of standards of living. That is the general disequilibrium. 
We cannot, by struggling, find a truth on which to base anything. It is by distancing ourselves from every reason for fighting, by achieving perfect moments which we know we can't surpass, that we have the power to assign to the movement of history that end which can only be insofar as it escapes us. Men committed to political struggle will never be able to yield to the truth of eroticism. Erotic activity always takes place at the expense of the forces committed to their conduct. Moreover, it is time in any case to oppose this mendacious world with the resources of an irony, a shrewdness, a serenity without illusions. For supposing we were to lose, we would be able to lose cheerfully, <coughs> without condemning, without prophesying. We are not looking for a rest. If the world insists on blowing up, we may be the only ones to grant it the right to do so, while giving ourselves the right to have spoken in vain. Um, next, uh, Frank Kabansky will be reading from um, Franz Kafka's novella The Hunger Artist, which is, uh, for those who don't know it, is the story of a once popular uh, performer who is now very unfashionable, um, who his performances to uh, starve himself in a cage for a number of days. And when we pick up this scene, he's uh, currently in, in the employ of uh, the last circus that seems to want to hire him, and he's been relegated to some far distant corner. So, uh, Frank. Try explaining the art of fasting. Someone who does not feel it will never understand. The beautiful posters became dirty and unreadable. They were torn down and no one thought of replacing them. The little board with the numbers uh, that told how long the fast has been going on, which in the beginning has, had always been carefully updated had been the same for a long time, since even this small task had become wearisome to the personal after the first few weeks. The hunger artist fasted on, as he had only dreamed of before, and without effort, he succeeded exactly as he had predicted. But no one counted the days, and no one, not even the hunger artist himself, knew how great his achievement already was and his heart became heavy. And when once during that time an idler stopped and made fun of the old number and said it was a fraud, it was the stupidest lie that indifference and inborn malice could invent. Because the hunger artist was cheating no one, he was working honestly. It was the world that was cheating him of his reward. But many days passed, and even that came to, end, to an end. One day, a supervisor noticed the cage and asked the servants why this perfectly serviceable cage had been left standing there, unused and full of rotten straw. No one knew until, with the help of the board with the number on it, someone remembered the hunger artist. They moved the straw with sticks and found the hunger artist inside. Are you still fasting? asked the supervisor. 
Aren't you ever going to stop? Forget me, everyone, whispered the hunger artist. Only the supervisor holding his ear to the bars understood him. Of course, said the supervisor, and put his finger against his brow to indicate the, uh, the hunger artist's condition to the worker. We forgive you. I always wanted you to admire my basket, said the hunger artist. And we do admire it, said the supervisor obligingly. But you shouldn't admire it, said the hunger artist. Well, we don't admire it, said the supervisor. But why shouldn't we admire it? Because I have to pass. I can't do otherwise, said the hunger artist. How old, said the supervisor. Why is it that you can't do otherwise? Because, said the hunger artist, slightly rising his little head and with lips pursed as though for a kiss. Speaking right into the supervisor's ear so that nothing would be lost because I couldn't find the food I liked. If I had found it, believe me, I would have stuck myself like you and everyone else. Those were his last words, but in his broken eyes there remained a firm, if no longer proud conviction, that he was continuing to fast. Now, clean this up, said the supervisor, and they buried the hunger artist with the straw. In the cage they put a young panther. To see this wild animal casting itself about in the cage that had been barren for so long was a recovery perceptible to even the dullest sensibility. The panther had everything. Without hesitation, the keepers brought it the food it liked. It did not even seem to miss its freedom. This noble body, furnished almost to the point of bursting, with everything it needed, seemed to carry freedom around with it. Freedom seemed to be lodged somewhere in its jaws. And happiness with life came from its throat with such force that it was not easy for the spectators to resist fleeing. But they overcame this urge, crowded around the cage, and never wanted to leave. So starting from this kind of existentialist sort of parable, parable sort of thing, um, we then move on to uh, Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, which we read by Orksa, whose surnames prompt work on my pronunciation abilities are, which I have not done, no, but no. I'm, I apologize. Okay. <laughs> so what is it? Auxa Betri Czechoslovakia. It is a hard word. <laughs> I think. Uh, anyway, I'm it's sorry. okay. Nick. Anyway, yeah. this adds a kind of more um, sort of specific social context to um, to this kind of this angst which is expressed here. So, um, in this particular reading, the uh, the protagonist Esther um, is relieved to hear from her therapist that she'll no longer be receiving visits from her mother. Yes. Yeah. 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 
Mrs. Bannister tells me you had a reaction. Dr. Nolan seated herself in the armchair by the window and took out a tiny box of matches. The box looked exactly like the one I had hidden in the hem of my bathrobe. And for a moment, I wondered if a nurse had discovered it there and given it back to Dr. Nolan on the quiet. Dr. Nolan scraped a match on the side of the box. A hot yellow flame jumped into life, and I watched her suck it up into the cigarette. Mrs. B says she felt better. I did for a while. Now I'm the same again. I have news for you. I waited. Every day now, for I didn't know how many days, I had spent the mornings and afternoons and evenings wrapped up in my white blanket on the deck chair in the alcove, pretending to read. I had a dim notion that Dr. Nolan was allowing me a certain number of days, and then she would say just what Dr. Gordon had said. I'm sorry, you don't seem to have improved. I think you'd better have some shock treatments. Well, don't you want to hear what it is? What? I said dully and braced myself. You're not to have any more visitors for a while. I stared at Dr. Nolan in surprise. Why, that's wonderful. I thought you'd be pleased, she smiled. Then I looked, and Dr. Nolan looked at the wastebasket beside my bureau. Out of the wastebasket poked the blood-red buds of a dozen long-stemmed roses. That afternoon, my mother had come to visit me. My mother was only one in a long stream of visitors. My former employer, the lady Christian scientist, who walked on the lawn with me and talked about the mist going up from the earth in the Bible, and the mist being error, and my whole trouble being that I believed in the mist. And the minute I stopped believing in it, it would disappear and I would see I had always been well. And the English teacher I had in high school, who came and tried to teach me how to play, how to play Scrabble, because he thought it might revive my old interest in words. And Philomena Kinney herself, who wasn't at all satisfied with what the doctors were doing, and kept telling them so. I hated these visits. I would be sitting in my alcove or in my room, and a smiling nurse would pop in and announce one or another of the visitors. Once they'd even brought the minister of the Unitarian Church, whom I never really liked at all. He was terribly nervous the whole time, and I could tell he thought I was crazy as a loon because I told him I believed in hell, and that certain people, like me, had to live in hell before they died to make up for missing out on it after death, since they didn't believe in life after death, and what each person believed happened to him when he died. I hated these visits because I kept feeling the visitors measuring my fat and stringy hair against what I had been and what they wanted me to be, and I knew they went away utterly confounded. I thought if they left me alone, I might have some peace. My mother was the worst. She never scolded me, but kept begging me with a sorrowful face to tell her what she had done wrong. She said she was sure the doctors thought she had done something wrong because they asked her a lot of questions about my toilet training. And I had been perfectly trained at a very early age and given her no trouble whatsoever. That afternoon, my mother had brought me the roses. Save them for my funeral, I said. My mother's face puckered and she looked ready to cry. But Esther, don't you remember what day it is today? 
No. I thought it might be St. Valentine's Day. It's your birthday. And that was when I had dumped the roses in the wastebasket. That was a silly thing for her to do, I said to Dr. Nolan. Dr. Nolan nodded. She seemed to know what I meant. I hate her, I said, and waited for the blow to fall. But Dr. Nolan only smiled at me as if something had pleased her very, very much and said, I suppose you do. With these two kind of texts, they are definitely texts. That's not kind. Of, um, these two texts, they, they kind of they they unfurl this this anxiety, this sort of external pressure onto onto uh, onto characters trying to operate. And and I kind I would say that uh, this comes together quite elegantly in um, Han Kang's 2007 novel, The Vegetarian. And the recent translation of this into English has been uh, really kind of. It's, it's, resonated quite deeply, it seems, across uh, a number of people who've uh, read it, at least when they've talked to me and when they've awarded book prizes. Um, not those people. Um, <laughs> and so uh, now uh, Rebecca Lynn will um, read uh, the opening remarks from this book, which is uh, the story of a woman who decides, well, who seems compelled to stop eating animal products and then eventually anything at all um, after, on the you know, direction of, uh, of, of dreams, which make her viscerally aware of the cruelty of humanity. Um, but that's not what we're getting at first. We're getting the dreams, but also uh, the motivations of her odd husband for why he married her in the first place. And why, of course, then you'll see why the vegetarianism became such a problem. Hmm. <laughs> Before my wife turned Sarah, I always thought of her as completely unremarkable in every way. To be frank, the first time I met her, I wasn't even attracted to her. Middling height, bobbed hair, neither long nor short, young, sickly-looking skin, somewhat prominent cheekbones, her timid, sallow aspects told me all I needed to know. As she came up to the table where I was waiting, I couldn't help but notice her shoes, the plainest black shoes imaginable, and that walk of hers, neither fast nor slow, striding nor mincing. However, if there wasn't any special attraction, nor did any particular drawbacks present themselves, and therefore, there was no reason for the two of us not to get married. The passive personality of this woman in whom I could detect neither freshness nor charm, or anything especially refined, suited me down to the ground. There was no need to affect intellectual learnings in order to win her over, or to worry that she might be comparing me to the freeing men who posed in fashion catalogues. And she didn't get worked up if I happened to be late for one of our meetings. The palms that started appearing in my mid-twenties, my skinny legs and forearms that steadfastly refused to bulk up in spite of my best efforts. The inferiority complex I used to have about the size of my penis, I could rest assured that I wouldn't have to fret about such things, such things on her account. Now it's from the wife perspective. Dark woods, no people. The sharp-pointed leaves under trees, my torn feet. This place almost remembered, but I'm lost now, frightened. 
curled across the frozen raven, a red barn like building, straw mating, flapping limp across the door, rolled up and amid inside its inside a long bamboo stick stung with great blood red gashes of meat, blood still dripping down. Try to push past the meat, but the meat there's no end to the meat and no exit, blood in my mouth, blood so close sucked onto my skin. The morning before I had the dream, I was lynching, frozen meat. Remember, you got angry. Damn it, what the hell are you doing screaming like that? You have never been squeamish before. If you knew how hard I always work to keep my nerves in check, other people just get a bit flustered, but for me, everything gets confused, speeds up. Quick, quicker, the hand holding the knife was working so quickly. I felt heat prickle the back of my neck, my hand, the chopping board, the meat, and then the knife slicing cold into my finger. A drop of red blood already bluesoming out of the cut, rounder and round. Seeing the finger in my mouth caught me in the scarlet color, and now that says sweetness, sweetness masking something else, left me strangely pacified. Later that day, when you sat down to a meal of bulgigo, you spat out the second mouthful and picked out something glittering. What the hell is this? What the hell is this? You yelled. A clip of the knife. I gazed vacantly at your distorted face as you raged. Just think what would have happened if I swallowed it. I, I was this close to dying. Why didn't this aggregate me like it should have done? Instead, I became even calmer. A cool hand on my forehead, suddenly everything around me began to slide away, as though pulled back on an ebbing tide, the, the dining table, you, all the kitchen furniture. I was alone, the only thing remaining in all infinity space. If only I could sleep, if only I could shut off consciousness for even just an hour. The hour, the house is cold on all these nights, more nights than I can count. When I wake up and pace around in bad feet, chill like rice or soup that has been left to go cold. Nothing is visible outside the black window. The dark front door rattles now and then, but no one comes to knock on the door or anything like that. By the time I come back to bed and put my hand under the quilt, all the warmth is gone. The dark that sank its teeth into my leg is changed up to false motorcycle. With its same tail bandage, to my calf wound, a traditional remedy mouth of Bistadan. I go out and stand in the main gate. I'm nine years old and the summer heat is different. The sun has gone down and still the sweat is running off me. The dark too is pouncing, its red tongue lolling. A white, handsome looking dog, bigger even than me. Up until a bit, the big man's daughter, everyone in the village always thought it could do no wrong. While father ties the dog to the tree and scores it with a lamp, he says it isn't to be flogged. He says he heard some, somewhere that driving a dog to keep running until the point of death is considered a milder punishment. 
the motorcycle engineer starts and father begins to drive in a circle. The dog runs along behind, two laps, three laps, the cycle round. Without moving a muscle, I stand just inside the gate, watching Rudy, eyes rolling and gasping for breath, gradually exhausting himself. Every time his gleaming eyes meet my own, I glare even more fiercely. Bad dog, you'd bite me. Once it has gone for five laps, the dog is floating at the mouth. Blood drips from its throat, which is being choked with the rope, constantly groaning with groaning through its damaged throat, the dog is dragged along the ground. At six laps, the dog vomits black as red blood, sickle from the mouth and open throat. As black and throat mix together, and sta I stand stiffly uptight, upright and stare at those two glittering eyes. Several laps, and while waiting for the dog to come to interview, father looks behind and sees that it's in fact dangling limply from the motorcycle. I look at the dog's four enduring legs, its raised eyelids, the blood and water in its dead eyes. Yeah. So for the final reading of um, this half before the break, um, I'm going to add a bit more destructive element to this, which is the, the final reading of the section will be uh, from Kathy Acker's novel, Great Expectations, which uh, takes the Charles Dickens novel, um, the same name, and uh, steals from it, and then uh, completely transforms it across time, genre, gender, location, and in every possible way to, to, to tell a story of growing up that doesn't become more valuable because of money, or troubles all of those ideas. Um, and I'll be from Giovanna Alessandro. There's no such thing as power and powerlessness. For instance, I, Peter, am totally passive or powerless. I live in a world in which one major power, the USA, is trying to artificially create a war with another great power to increase its military budget. All rich business businessmen get richer while wars are always fought on top of the bodies of poor people. We're really, really powerless. Anything mental is real. Dear Peter, I think your new girlfriend stinks. She's a liar all the way around because her skin is yellow from jaundice, not from being Chinese like she pretends. She's only pretty because she's wearing a mask. You're hooked on her tight little cunt. It's only a sexual attraction. I know you're very attracted to sex because when you were young, you were fat and no girl wanted to fuck you. What you don't know is that this cunt contains lots of poison, not just jaundice, a thousand times more powerful than the coke she's feeding you to keep you with her, especially one lethal poison developed by the notorious Pumanchu that takes cocks turns their upper halves purple, their lower parts bright yet, their eyes go blind so they can no longer see what's happening. The person dies. Your new girlfriend is insane and she's poisoning you. Love, Rosa. P.S. I'm only telling you this for your own good. Dear Peter, I want you wet. I want you drifting all over me. I want you just for sex. Once I know I can have you, I might ignore you. I know that would be very stupid. Then you'd run away as fast as you could. Then I'd want you so much, I'd figure more subtle, wet, lasting ways to commit suicide than all the ways. Like lobotomy, everyone in my family goes, I, robot, flesh, made of steel. I have these past two years since you left me. Ours is the hardest love affair that has ever existed, and I'm telling everyone that it is so. Physical <coughs> sex doesn't have to have anything to do with love affairs. Love affairs are when each person can do anything they want, then the other person realizes that the most unbelievably 
unbelievable behavior possible as usual. Love, Rosa. The gritty thing, the gritty state of things to come. Dear Zubair, this serves you right. I told you this was going to happen. Now that I've spent last night fucking you, I'm in love with you. I'm writing these few lines to give you the news and the news isn't good. A few minutes ago, the cops arrested me for stealing a copy of Simeo text. You keep talking about how you're making Italian terrorism fashionable. Isn't my ass here in New York worth at least a penny to you for every dollar of Italian terrorist ass over there? I think you should be nice to me because I'm just a helpless little girl. Also, please try to get permission to come see me and bring me some underwear. Put in your cat because I need affection and you don't need anything. How are you? Darling, I'm awfully sorry about what's happening to me. Let's face it. Some kids are born with silver spoons in their mouths. I'm an old woman whose teeth are falling out. I'm counting on you to help me out. I wish I could run into your chest and climb on your arms three hours a week and no more. Remember what we do together when I'm unparanoid enough to see you. Remember what we do together when I'm unparanoid enough to see you. Try to recognize the only reality of the real world. No one gives a shit about anything. Get on your knees, sweetheart, and kiss the earth. Love, Rosa. We have proven that communication is impossible. Dear Susan Sontag, would you please read my books and make me famous? <laughs> Actually, I don't want to be famous because then all these people who are very boring will stop me in the street and bother me already. I hate the people who call me on the phone because I'm always having delusions. And I'll see my delusions are more interesting than anything that can happen to me in New York. Despite everyone saying New York is just the most fascinating city in the world. Except when Sylvia fucks me. I wish I knew how to speak English. Dear Susan Sontag, will you teach me how to speak English? For free, because you understand I'm an artist, and artists by definition are people who never pay for anything. Even though they sell their shows out at $10,000 a painting before the show opens. All my artist friends were starving to death before they landed in their middle class mother's wombs. They especially tell people how they're starving to death when they order $250 each beer at the mud club. Poverty is one of the most repulsive aspects of human reality. More disgusting than all the artists who are claiming they're total scums are the half artists, the hypocrites, the academics who think it's in to be poor, who wants to be poor, who despise the white silk napkins I got off my dead grandmother. She finally did something for me for once in her life, death, <laughs> because those critics don't know what it's like to have to tell men they're wonderful for money, because you've got to have money for 10 years. I hope this society goes to hell. I understand you're very literate, Susan Sunset. Yours, Rosa. <laughs> Dear David, are you a Tibetan monk yet? I used to hate you because you don't love me so much, you would give up your whole life for me. I expect this of every man. In retrospect, I realize that I was also selfish. I should have stopped making demands that you not be the placid female-hating sadist you are. I understand it's very hard to be rich because rich people are trained. They can't just be poor. They're trained to act as if they need to work and be big worldview successes. The explanation that you gave up writing your visions in order to do commercial Hollywood script writing because you needed Francis Ford Coppola's $150,000 when you receive huge monthly estate checks rivals a university professor's essay on the similarities between Moby Dick and Nazism. At least the university professor really has to make a living. Language means nothing anymore anyway. Walking down 2nd Avenue with you while you're telling me you're as poor as me when I know I have to fuck 13 inches in porn films the next day so I can pay Peter, my husband, whose goddamn room wasn't as bad as how my other boyfriends treated me. At least you bought me lunch at Amy's after we fucked. The only thing I resent is when you were doing everything you could to force me to fuck your Tibetan guru and I had bad gonorrhea. That your environmental witness does not excuse. I'd like to fuck you when you turn from London. Yours, Rosa.
Thanks for listening to part one of Accursed Growth. Part two with the analysis and discussion from Bjorn Oren Grimm and Rebecca Lund is in your feed right now and on SoundCloud. This event was part of 2017's Copiho Laser Festival and made possible with support of Novo Lokel Lula. The ARC Audio Book Club will be back next month where we'll be discussing Claire Louise Bennett's short story collection, One.